Hello and welcome to the Truth About Local Government podcast, a podcast aimed at providing a platform to promote the excellent work that the political members and officers of local authorities are doing to overcome the increasing challenges facing the communities across the UK. Additionally, we will be promoting the wider way of career opportunities that exist within local government. We hope this podcast will help drive engagement between the public and local authorities across the UK. Hello there and welcome back to The Truth About Local Government, a podcast where we talk to leaders in councils and their supply chain, those making a difference to lives across the UK. Now, today I've got a really exciting guest, Nikki Davies, who's the Managing Director at Meeting Place. How are you, Nikki? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm happy Happy it's, uh, happy it's the end of the week and nearly Christmas. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And today with me as co-host is Amy Cox. Amy sits in our policy team recruiting into public affairs and communications agencies in the UK. She is a passionate advocate of this sector and so we are very grateful to have her with me today. Let's kick things off, Nikki. So what is your current role? So I'm, I'm Managing Director at Meeting Place. So my and Meeting Place, for those that don't know, is a PR and public affairs agency focused in the built environment. So our clients are all seeking or are in the kind of large scale planning permission game, as it were. So they might be seeking to acquire sites or build them out. But we sort of help our clients through that whole life cycle, um, engage with non-technical audiences. And for us, that's local communities, politicians and the media. My role within the business is to kind of set our strategy, innovate our products um, and make sure that we're kind of providing a value to our clients and and furthering the kind of quote unquote science of communications within the planning and engagement space, thinking about things like inclusivity, digital engagement, um, social impact and all the wonderful um, initiatives that are kind of rolling out of, of planning and, and development um, today. It's so interesting because I had a meeting with um, the director at uh, North East Arbus yesterday and we were talking about communication and inclusivity as part of that process. Communities want to feel that they are part of that development process. It's not happening to them. They're part of it. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's just so important in this day and age that everybody feels that they are being engaged with um, so that they feel part and ownership around that um, that place function. Um, so, Nikki, what's been your journey to get to the managing director at Meeting Place? Uh, interesting question. I tell this story a lot. Um, I find it quite embarrassing, actually, but I should be proud. I actually started at Meeting Place 12 years ago as like the most junior position. I was an account executive on a six week temporary contract. It was meant to end at Christmas, um, but that rolled into a permanent one onto account manager and then kind of yeah, the rest is history. And I, I took over running the business two and a half years ago. Um, and I'll probably be here until I retire. I think I'm, I'm quite unusual in in from my generation to be like be a lifer at a place. But um, I've never seen a reason to leave. I've I've gotten everything that I need, all the support, the recognition, the value, and and be able to like apply kind of my passion and interest to kind of housing and politics. So yeah, I don't I don't see a need to leave. But yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride. <laughs> it's really good to see because it's just exactly as you said it's not very often that people stay within an organization for that long so it's it's really nice for us to see and again i think the thing as well i mean on that point amy because you and i talk a lot about this when you have leaders within organizations who have gone through the journey with that organization yeah. i feel like the the strategy approach is so much more inclusive about bringing talent through your retention is higher and that transcends into the communications with your client base. But I think a key question for you here is, how do you measure social impact? 
Uh, well, I have quite controversial views on this. So, like anybody that knows anything about social value or social impact knows that it's been quite a metric focused um, initiative since it's sort of emerged since the Social Value Act of 2012. Um, and it's it's unfortunately for me gone down that kind of measurement route. And I think there's lots of calculators out there. It's not an exact science. There's the TOMS, there's the UNSDGs, there's the five capitals. Um, there's lots that, and other calculators are available. Those are just the ones that kind of we use within our system. But I think um, an obsession with measurement is what's been happening of late. Like we must calculate it down to the penny. We must throw out these massive numbers and that's how we tell everyone we're making a social impact. And um, meeting place, our sort of um, approach to the whole thing is like, yes, measurement is important and that speaks to one particular audience. So we have measurement tools. Um, we hired a, a head of social impact earlier this year who's a whiz with the calculator. Um, but our she just helps us enhance um, telling the, the the human story of social impact. So the, the reason all of us do social impact is to change lives in perpetuity for the better. That That is what it's supposed to be all about. And when you boil it down to a number, you lose that fundamental meaning and therefore you forget why you're in even doing it in the first place. And so our role within that is to say, yes, we can measure. Great. Let's take that off. But let's not obsess over that. Let's figure out what this community actually needs. Let's elevate those human stories and let's make sure that this becomes like this kind of reciprocal thing where we're telling the public about it. Then they're telling us what they want to see and vice versa. So, um, yeah, you measure it with calculation, but I think you need to also measure it with a kind of qualitative um case studies and interviews and um, storytelling uh, as much as as with numbers. Do you get resistance with that? Do people challenge you in terms of your perception of, well, the way in which you look at social value? It's interesting because I, I spoke at the Social Value UK conference um, in Manchester earlier this year and I sat on a panel about measurement and I was the only one that kind of said this rather controversial thing and people were like shifting in their seats. It doesn't seem controversial to me at all. But and, and the, the most pushback that I tend to get is from the kind of social value community, the sort of social value geeks who are kind of love talking about all the different measurements and the proxy values and the kind of it's a science it, they've made it into a science and it's their passion and, and and I don't fault them for that but I I you know I and my and our business come at it from a different angle by because we we focus on the communications we focus on the people and we focus on the storytelling that that allows us to get planning permission for something that might have been really controversial but actually because we've been able to talk about what good it will do it actually gets done and it doesn't get stalled or never happened in the first place because of um, misnomers. And we know that numbers wouldn't have made that that difference. So for us, it's it's not controversial, um, but for certain elements of particularly the social the social value geeks, it is. Um, so it's really great, I guess, that we've got you on the call to um, on the podcast to talk about measuring social impact. If you're sitting on panels doing it all the time anyway. Yeah. But I guess my question for you is how do you achieve social impact through the built environment? Um, so it, it starts with like a, developing a really good understanding of what situation you're stepping into in the first place. I think um, the mistake is too often to think like, oh, social impact, that's apprenticeships. I'm going to create apprenticeships through my development. That is that is one part of the story. And and most places across the country could benefit from more jobs and apprenticeship training more engagement with young people but that's not like the be all and end all and that's not where social impact stops or or should stop within a development the development has the ability to do so much more so we we start by doing by establishing a really good baseline it's a kind of social value needs analysis we look at what charities are already operating in the local area what census data tells us about what the local need is because if you think about 
even if you just look at Bristol in the southwest where I'm where I'm sat, Hengrove is going to need really different social impact interventions to Southville even. And we're but all in South Bristol or even looking over the river into Lawrence Hill versus I mean, I, Clifton probably doesn't need any social in, impact interventions, <laughs> but it will have it will have things that it needs. It can't be providing 100 percent for all of its communities all the time. And so you need to understand that base level because apprenticeships are going to have a different quote, value in one community than they will elsewhere, where the needs outnumber those in employment, for example, it's going to have a much higher value. But there are lots of other ways to deliver social impact. So um, like if you think about Bristol specifically, again, it's, it's, where I, it's where I know, it's where I sit. Arts and culture is a big part of some communities. It's not a part of others. How do you embed that arts and culture scene? How do you make the arts and culture that's readily available in parts of our city equally available in other parts of the city to enrich their lives, open doors, provide opportunity. Um, and um, and then it's about under the client understanding in their project that it's not them that needs to do all those things. Like sometimes, sometimes client gets put off because they're like, oh, it's going to cost me a load of money. And it's like, no, actually, it might just cost you time or it might just cost you like expending some of your network, for example. So where you're existing in a place and you know someone who runs a really interesting program around kind of providing young people opportunities for performing arts. Um, you, you could connect them or I could connect them with a person that has a space that could be used as a meanwhile use on a site that's vacant, that's waiting to be developed. They've therefore, they've got like a kind of a, a tokenry rent, but they're providing, you're providing a facility to an organization that was already doing something good so it doesn't cost you anything. It just costs you a bit of time and a bit of kind of a bit of networking. Um, and also by con connecting with these organizations that are already on the ground that were there before you and will be there after you. It means that your development and your social impact isn't just a flash in the pan. It will it will it, it can outlive your involvement in the scheme. And that really is kind of the difference between corporate social responsibility, which is these one off sort of flash in the pan activities to long term partnership with a community and embedding your development so that it is continually providing for generations to come. That's, I literally love that because, yeah. you know, so much of what I do in my job, when we're talking about communities, it's now about partnerships. It's about yeah. the facilitating the, because we can't deliver everything ourselves. Like in terms of the client can't deliver and all they should be expected to, but what they can do is encourage and develop partnerships that not only meet the, the evolving needs of the community, but are also financially sustainable. So it's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful thing. What are the challenges though? Because there must be challenges to delivering this. Yeah, I mean, I think the varying, as I've said before, like I've, I've said, you know, there's not one way to measure or talk about social impacts. And for me, I see that as a real benefit. It means that anyone can enter it. Anyone can like try it and not fall foul because you haven't got some certificate that says you're an expert in social impact. But it also means that there's like a lack of understanding around what it is and how you do it. And there's varying degrees of, of what it is. Um, and so that's the challenge because some people go, oh yeah, I'm doing social impacts. I, I, pro I provide apprenticeships on all my, my schemes. And you're like, okay, no, that is, yeah, that, that, that's part of it. But there's so much more that you could be doing if you really just kind of applied uh, time and and look at the expertise across the project team as well so like there's wide-ranging developments in biodiversity landscaping architecture design communications politics like if we could provide think about everybody that works on a project and think about how they all could make an individual impact within a scheme it's not just hard hats and and hammers um and so that's the challenge i think is to get people to kind of expand their mind be, be beyond the kind of obvious which is oh yeah 
apprenticeships. And I, I think that's the thing as well is, you know, I can't remember who said this, but if you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yes. It's, it's, it's trying to get people to be really open minded, have a growth mindset around and being curious. Because I think if you're curious, if you're open to ideas, that's when the really exciting things start to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like we work with a client in, in London called Dominus who had a, had a project in, um, we didn't work on it, but they're an amazing client. I'll give them a shout out. And it's a, it's an example of having an open mind. So they, they wanted to build some student accommodation in the city of West, Westminster. That's not a traditional use. They had to think creatively about how they're going to make that happen. But they had this amazing ground floor space. The guy who started Dominus is an, is an immigrant himself. He came to this country 60 odd years ago, has ha- been really successful and wanted to give back and knew that the kind of immigration museum in London was looking for a semi-permanent home. And so he kind of brought that immigration museum to the table, brought Westminster Council to the table and brought other partners to the table to say, I want to facilitate the delivery of this. And I want to bring you all together to help me to do it. And now they've got this kind of permanent home in Westminster. It allowed Dominus to get student accommodation in the city of London, which is like not a traditional use. They like to do tourism um, and and kind of commercial space. So Dominus won, the um, Immigration Museum won, the city of Westminster won because they got that kind of leisure and tourism use as well. And that's kind of an example of like, just open your mind to what's possible. The, anyone, any one of those parties could have turned around and said, it can't be done. Westminster could have said, we don't want student accommodation in our local authority area because it's not what we do. And, you know, Dominus could have said, I don't want to give like a, a cheap rent to, to the Immigration Museum because I want to make money out of my development. And, the, you know, there's loads of challenges that could have been put in those people's ways. But by bringing them together and then working in partnership and, as you said, having that kind of what is possible here, let's kind of extend our mind to it. It was it was able to be delivered. And it's it's a fantastic story. It's brilliant. And I think what we've done here is we've discussed the challenges, but also an excellent example of an opportunity that that this whole sector can provide to everyone who lives in a particular area. And I just wondered if you had any other opportunities off the top of your head that that you can that you can that you can do to impact the built environment. There is this great charity that works out there called um, Building Heroes. Um, It's provide training, on-site training um, to uh, veterans so people that have left the military and often when you leave the military you kind of you've got a particular skill set right but it's not necessarily immediately obvious to you how you apply that to being like a civvy as they would call it um and they quite often find you know there's lots of stats out there around alcoholism drug abuse and homelessness because you're you're provided a home in the army it's a really sad story for how we how how people um who have served their country are then left to sort of flounder about and are not really supportive so building heroes is like come in to kind of plug that gap and they've they've they had these kind of um training programs through colleges and then they saw that they was even better if they could link with um actual developments and have on-site training facilities so they partnered with a couple of our clients um Vistry and Regal Regal's the one we've done the most with um in London and um, they've also through work with a development partner like Regal and with local authorities who are interested in it, but also need to provide local training opportunities to say, how can you expand your program beyond just veterans and also offer local people an opportunity? Um, so it's like a six week fast track training program that allows you to then probably walk into a number of entry level positions on a construction site, which I think is just like. And it costs yeah. the developer almost nothing. It drops a they drop a shipping container on the site. It's there throughout the development, um, and it creates these long term outcomes that mean yeah they might not work on that development, but they could work on the one after, the one after, the one after, um, and it allows people to kind of take their skills. So like if you think about a veteran, they're 
they're really good at making a plan and executing that plan. They're very on time. Um, they can they can take orders. You know, they can kind of they they're subordinate and they can listen to to senior people, which is quite often what you what you need just to be to thrive in a workplace. Um, and so that's a really great example of yeah a charity out there that exists that if you if you dug if you just did a little bit of research you could find you could partner with them they've got this ready-made offer it takes you no time or effort um, and you can provide kind of impact like that i'm so passionate about supporting veterans um we did an episode on the podcast with keith girling who is the armed forces representative for nottinghamshire and we discussed about how you've got the gold bronze and silver um levels uh, to, to this and for example with councils when veterans finish their their employment they normally don't end up where they were from originally but housing is allocated one of the main criteria is are you from this area originally so then they changed it so i completely agree with you and i think it's just yeah. it's such an important piece but that i think what what is it we're in a period of constant change we're in evolution mm-hmm. like every every few years things are being turned on its head there's disruptors what do you see the future holding for place and these sorts of really important initiatives so I, I think social impact, um, well, right now, social impact, for those that don't know, is kind of nice to have. So you have um, developers like voluntarily um, agreeing on planning applications, at least, to do a social value needs analysis and submit a social impact statement with their planning application. There's varying degrees at which that is monitored after consent is given based on largely the resource available at a local authority or the overall understanding of that local authority. And we know that particularly resource is stretched um, and is only seemingly going to get worse um, and uh, in the future. Um, and so it's it's kind of a variety. It, it, it happens in sh- all different shapes and forms. And I think as we move forward, um, it's going to become increasingly a requirement. I think that if I mean, if you go back 10, 12 years, even community engagement was a nice to have. And then you saw the Localism Act and then you saw, you know, sex. Um, SEIs becoming a requirement of planning applications and now as you say people just assume you know they demand that they're going to be involved rather than it being a nice to have I think that's the trajectory of social impact as well we had the social value act of 2012 we've got this massive groundswell of people wanting it to be adopted and more and more developers seeing it as not just the right thing to do but also like good for their bottom line good for their overall reputation and, and good for the world um and so I think you'll see increasingly I think it'll probably be a ground ground up thing where local authorities will start putting it in as part of their local plan like a policy within their local plan to require it you've got um there's there's a couple of local authorities up in the greater manchester area that are already doing that islington in london has done it bristol has a has has had a social value policy for a long time Um, but i think it'll just become one of those things that's going to become unexpected and and whether people like it or not they're going to be required to do it so better to be an early adopter now and be leading from the front than trying to catch up when it becomes a requirement of you um, later down the line. That's just so interesting because, I mean, again, when I'm interacting on a daily basis with directors of of planning at local authorities, they are constantly looking at ways to innovate and engage their community because they know Mm -hmm. if they do that at the front end of their local plan, and, 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 you know, even, for example, when there's potentially a large contentious development coming through, if you mm. engage the community, the likelihood that that will not only happen, but the positive consequences of that as well, if they can really make you aware. And I think as well, what's nice about that is the facilitation of that communication. We've got a society that's getting ever more IT literate. So mm. it's, it's you know, particularly in rural areas as well, there's the accessibility of information is becoming more and more readily available, which I think is kind of removing barriers to communication engagement but Nikki it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you I I just love your passion I love what your company does 
and I'm just really Thank grateful for, for, for Amy as well to, to organise us to have this conversation today. I just really am grateful to both of you. So thank you for both for coming on. No, thank you, Nikki. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Really lovely to speak to you both. Appreciate your time. Thank you. You've been listening to The Truth About Local Government. Today, we've been lucky enough to have Nikki Davies, a leader in talking about social impact and value. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give it a like, give it a share and tune back in later in the week for some more interesting episodes. Thank you for listening to The Truth About Local Government podcast. Now, 87% of listeners who enjoyed the podcast, do not leave a review, follow the podcast or share it. Please, if you liked it, review it, share it and let's keep spreading the positive message about local government.